वेलकम टू द इंडियन सिलिकॉन वैली पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट जिवराज एंड ऑन दिस पॉडकास्ट आई स्पीक विद फाउंडर्स इन्वेस्टर्स एंड डोमेन एक्सपर्ट्स फ्रॉम द इंडियन वैली ट्राइंग टू अंडरस्टैंड द आर्ट ऑफ बिल्डिंग अ लेजेंडरी कंपनी इन दिस एपिसोड आई स्पीक विद साहिल गोयल कोफाउंडर एंड सीईओ ऑफ शिप रॉकेट शिप रॉकेट इज बिल्डिंग इंडियाज लार्जेस्ट ई कॉमर्स इनेबलर विद द वेज ऑफ बींग द लीडिंग प्लेयर इन लॉजिस्टिक्स and now expanding into other ancillary categories that simplify the lives of independent e-commerce merchants shiprocket is a special company and we record much of their 10 plus year journey to get here i asked sahil questions around the pivots the behind the scenes in logistics the culture and many more aspects that help us understand more about the core business model that shapes the success of shiprocket this was a special conversation as sahil brings lots of clarity and structure to company building tune in for a great one but before we get started here is a quick word about our sponsor this episode of the indian silicon valley podcast is presented by stride ventures which is one of india's leading venture debt funds becoming synonymous with innovative startup financing in india stride ventures provides comprehensive solutions going beyond venture debt to cater to distinctive challenges faced by high growth and inherently strong businesses backed by leading institutions the fund has a portfolio of over 60 plus diversified companies having deployed more than 1500 crore rupees to date in just over 2 years stride ventures has emerged as the preferred venture debt lender in the indian ecosystem to know more about this phenomenal fund visit strideventures.in that is spelled as s t r i d e v e n t u r e s . i n and with that let's dive in to the 134th episode of the indian silicon valley podcast with sahil of ship rocket thank you so much sahil for joining me very excited to be hosting you thanks jibraj for having me very excited to be here as well Thanks again Sahil and I think uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of the ship rocket journey is how it started and where it's gone and I think what you continue doing in terms of the mission of empowering every digital transaction uh, from an e-commerce lens uh, and when I was going through my research I think the audacious mission uh, the early pivots the early journey the challenges really stood out for me and I want to cover much of it through this next 60 minutes but as we get started uh, what really caught my eye was also your early experience of understanding the landscape when it comes to e-commerce in india as well as uh, globally right if i'm not wrong you were at walmart briefly you saw early days of shopify then you tried to bring that context back to india as well if you can maybe take us down memory lane talk to us about what that was like what shaped your early influence of e-commerce uh, and how that would impact uh, india i think that'll be very interesting to hear no no absolutely happy to do it you know i think uh, the mission still stays alive intact you know the way it had started nothing has changed there which is actually quite exciting you know because india has given promise uh, in terms of our for our future prediction if you will uh, and allowed us to continue building on that mission i think very limited context was available right professionally at least to me when i had started my career back you know 10 11 years ago uh well well when i started ship rocket uh, 10 11 years ago i had worked in insurance for a while you know i was in tech on the insurance side but i used to code websites and that was exciting to me that's kind of how i got exposed to shopify 
Walmart was only a three month MBA internship, but believe me, like they have such a great program where you get exposure, like a year worth of exposure in those three months. And, you know, it kind of came together in my head in 2011, largely led by Shopify because like they were just doing a amazing job. They were building simplified tools uh, that were, uh, you know, it was a platform like experience. Today we are very used to it, but back then everything else was a software. You know, and for software, you need a manual. And I think Shopify kind of solved that by saying, no, no, we're going to build it like a platform or a very intuitive product. And that's why it got the entrepreneurs armed with the right set of tools. And that that proposition was very exciting. You know, I had come from uh, an SMB background family in India. We knew a bunch about India in terms of how people think, you know, and, and for Gautam and I were the you know, first two guys who started this. It was a bit of a jump in the deep end to say, look, there is no research because like it's not happened yet, but let's, let's take a punt. And, you know, it seems like a, a daunting enough mission there that, that there should be enough meat available to, to solve, you know, over the years. So that's kind of how we came about here back in 20, 2012. Got it. Got it. I think uh, that personifies right place, right time, but it's interesting how you, you know, started. It was a Shopify like version for India, if I'm not wrong. And it was called cart rocket back then and there were multiple iterations before you came to the current version right uh, if you can maybe talk us through what that was like and also what it means to be maybe early in the market right if that was the case because at least from the outside looks like maybe india was not ready for independent merchants at the time like we are right now so maybe talk us through those nuances and what it was like on ground in reality back in the day yeah i mean the initial like i said given that we were so heavily uh, inspired by and in awe of Shopify, we thought we would go ahead and build that for India, whatever it meant for India. We were called Cart Rocket. We were India's first sort of meaningfully scaled in a, in a couple of years, became India's first meaningfully scaled uh, DIY web platform for building websites. You know, we we tried to do the app store bit a bit, got about 30, 40 other developers to kind of, you know, distribute their apps to our merchants. Uh, day one, we understood that shipping and payments was essential, you know, because our ground infrastructure for both of those things was just not there. So we became like a enabler for those things. Very, very low touch, but still kind of had to do it because brands couldn't do it themselves. So that insight came quite early on. Uh, but yet we were still focused on, you know, uh, building it as a software, building it as a uh, SaaS platform. And we did get the first thousand merchants, I would say, you know, built it to like a couple of million dollars in ARR in two, three years of, of launching, but then started hitting a wall because I think we got every merchant there was to get, uh, you know, it was, it was very early. Like this is the time when people were asking us, you know, like, why should I go online? I, I mean, and this is pre Amazon, right? We launched before Amazon launched in India. Flipkart was obviously growing very rapidly. We obviously couldn't make the market. Like we just didn't have enough funds or, or capabilities, you know, at that point to uh, try and create a market. But I think the belief in the mission continued to be that, look, eventually people will need some toolkit to sell directly. Like that's not going away. Uh, it's a matter of time and we may not have product market fit, but it, it's going to happen. So I think with that sort of focus on that mission, we, we kept trying different things. One of the things we were struggling with very hard was uh, just in general, like CACs were high, Retention was low, you know, the pricing model was off. Subscription was very new to India. We didn't have direct debit, still don't to some extent, you know, and people would invariably expect us to generate demand for them, which was just sort of like not our business. 
But I think that was the expectation that, look, I'm going to invest, you know, X thousand rupees into your platform. Why am I not getting orders? You know, and that was a hard one to explain because people would compare it to offline retail uh, where, you know, I'd pay rent for a shop. And the thing is, you know, rent in a high street area is, is payment for demand as well as for shelf space. It's both of them together, which is not true for online. The ecosystem also was not really available, you know, where the way Facebook ads and Google ads are accessible today, the number of agencies and tools that are available today, it wasn't there. A lot of people weren't aware. I think what we decided to do was to, rather than try to change the user, we said, I think it's it's time that we change ourselves because this is not where the market's at. You know, our, our focus and our objective continues to be uh, to help these guys, you know, our, our customer audience win. So we decided to go mobile in 2014. Earlier called it Cart Rocket Studio. It was a uh, like a one-page website builder. We took the Cart Rocket experience on mobile, basically. You know, you could take a picture or import your Instagram feed. A lot of social commerce had started happening, by the way, very, very, you know, in an unorganized, unstructured, unstructured fashion. So for some time, we thought we might, we might want to try and structure that on a platform by saying, look, don't sell on Instagram, sell here. I'll give you a PG, a payment gateway, a shipping layer and a, a five minute uh, website builder, right? On the mobile. And to be honest, that was the first time we actually saw a lot of scale, at least on the merchant side, where we were now able to attract, you know, tens of thousands of leads. It was behaving more and more like an internet company. Uh, people could sign up, self-service was happening, right? So we were not having to kind of do it for them. So that was a big win. But the problem was that there was still no monetization. There were still no orders coming in. And from there, I think we expanded that vision to say, let's build a demand engine because everyone wants demand. Uh, we built a Facebook ad engine. We built a Google ad engine. We kind of went around the block a bit, uh, did scale it. You know, we scaled it to about a couple of hundred thousand orders a month, uh, which at that scale was decent. But again, it was still very much resembling a marketplace because merchants said, look, we just want to pay commission. Uh, we don't want to pay you for ads. And that's just, we don't want to invest money, right? We, we want to pay when we get paid. And I think that was a key, key learning for us that in terms of how Indian uh, long tail merchants behave or what is their, how do, how do they operate their business? You know, cause they're also operating on thin margins. They don't have a lot of capital available to invest behind, uh, something digital, which is, which is new, right. It was new at the time. And during that journey, you know, when we did the long tail platform, we started finding that shipping was broken. Like it was impossible even for us to, to be able to easily go to the carriers and say, well, every step from pickup to like everything that comes after that just wasn't working as smoothly as it should have been. And obviously we built it for us, for ourselves. We worked very hard with the carriers. You know, we couldn't do it the way Amazon did it because Amazon had massive scale and massive capital available to their disposal. So we said we should do it in an ecosystem first way. We were always uh, very, very, I guess, philosophically, we were very keen on being able to integrate what's there rather than trying to kind of carve out things and do it ourselves. So we, we started doing that, worked very hard with our 3PL partners, got them to kind of build new APIs, expose things to us, fix the process. And, and it was working well by the end of the two, three year period that we ran it. In fact, it was working so well that uh, merchants started writing to us saying that we don't want to use the rest of the platform because I've got all these other WhatsApp orders or whatever orders from India Mart, you know, just dial that I just want to ship because I'm, I'm having a hard time doing it. And that's kind of when we first started to really take it seriously. Uh, we always knew shipping was a challenge, but in our heads, it was always a feature. You know, it was not the product. It was a, the product has to be something else. And this is an enabler for the product. So it was always had like a bit of a stepchild 
treatment in our heads until you know we, we were anyway kind of finding it hard to scale with the existing model a lot of people were writing to us we had understood how long tail smbs thing understood how to solve for diy in a country like india how to monetize you know how to collect money how to build a a uh, uh, high retention high revenue retention business so some of those learnings had come which gave us a confidence that okay you know let's apply some of this to the shipping stack as a separate uh, product and that's what we did in 2016 end and in 17 that's kind of how we launched ship rocket because it was it's not apparent you know a lot of people ask me that like would you did you uh, did you waste 5 years kind of getting to it it's impossible to have this insight out of the box like you have to have been doing this Uh, to see this problem so up close, uh, to then be able to say that okay, it can be solved, you know, uh, in a in a certain fashion. Got it. That's very interesting. I think a very very fascinating journey, especially the turn of events. Uh, what I'd love to know, and maybe if you can double click in in theory, this sounds like a very linear or exponential pathway. But of course, I mean the mindset that you need to keep to be agile and to be like you know intellectually honest that okay, this is not working. Although we might be growing, but this is not what the eventual game is. That that requires a certain amount of acceptance, right? So as founders, how do you build that mindset? How do you you know it? rate uh fast enough what's the um, mental capacity that you need to make it happen i'd love to know that piece of the pie i think you you said it in your question itself you know you said intellectual honesty it's a believe me it's a it's a very very underrated skill if not value because see what happens is there's so much flux right in a rapidly evolving market x person raised you know 50 million dollars to do this maybe we should be doing that you know there's a lot of uncertainty in a in a, a young founder's life you know it's always like a flowing stream of insecurities and paranoia so it's very when when all that's happening right i think what you can fall back or at least what we learned to fall back on every time was one our conviction right to say okay forget what's happening right maybe we'll build a small company but we'll build a real company so what is our conviction what is our understanding of the problem statement and are we really solving a problem being honest about that you know and one way like one of my early investors uh, rajan from nirvana who still very much a mentor and on the board he would always ask me that tell me if you died today if your company died today would anyone care and it's okay to have only a thousand people care a lot than a hundred thousand people who sort of care right so so i think uh, that thought process helped us to say are we just sort of a push product that's just put up there and people are using it till we incentivize it or keep pushing them or is this something people really need and what problem are we really solving so and we by the way continue to ask that question to us with every uh, new product we innovate or every new feature we're trying to build that is this really going to solve a problem so kind of falling back on first principles just in terms of value creation you know that is this going to create value eventually and sometimes you'll still be wrong but i'm saying having that lens as a very very clear objective lens almost built back into the dna of every minute you spend that is what will eventually it makes it a very easy conversation then right to kill things or shrink them or grow them or invest behind otherwise it's a it's a very very qualitative subjective winding discussion uh with your founding team management team and so on and i think we learned it the hard way because you know as you as we went through these pivots they were not at all linear they were very very roller coaster like uh, emotionally financially uh in every way and 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 that that is when you learn this to be honest you know and people would tell us but it's just like you you have to make your mistakes right uh, you can't learn because somebody else said it like it's it's i've now never come across a founder so far you know who says oh yeah this person told me and i changed the next day doesn't happen 
Yeah, no, that's awesome to hear. I think it's important to have that, you know, iterated as many times because otherwise it gets easy to just forget all of that, look at the present success and be like, okay, this was intuitive all along the way. But then how you got there is more important than where you got, especially considering the audience. But this is awesome. I think this is flowing really well. Coming to, of course, the current avatar, right? Now now it's a shipping aggregator with a bunch of other horizontal features where you're building an ecosystem that powers e-commerce transactions for merchants, right? Uh, maybe if you want to, you know, just for context also, give us the behind the scenes, right? Because as a customer and even as a merchant, right? I'm guessing the interface and the functionality is really simple, right? You do a couple of clicks, and the eventual objective gets fulfilled. But you as a company are doing multiple things in the background, which we don't get to see and which I feel can be a huge eye-opener for anybody who's not aware. So maybe if you can maybe tell us what happens and more importantly, how it happens, that'll be super interesting, Sahil. Sure. See, I think uh, we, we have to look at the stack as a part of the transaction. So if you think about today when when consumers shop on Amazon, you know, you you fire up the app or you go to Google search, you look for a product or you see an ad and you click the product, whatever. You land on Amazon's product pages, uh, you look for pricing, you look for uh, reviews, you know, and, and then you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you head on to the buy button. Then you look for shipping speed. You know, when is it coming? Is it coming in five days? Oh, no, no, but I want it tomorrow. Let me change my mind, buy something else. You have shopped on Amazon before and hence you know that, you know, if there's something wrong with this, I'll get my money back. I can return it. You can, if you are able to pay digitally, you'll pay seamlessly because it's easier and you trust Amazon, you know, and Amazon will deliver when they say they'll deliver. You'll see the prime tag. If you don't like it, you can return it. You can leave a review. That's the buying process, right? The current ecosystem, you know, and at least a few years ago, the ecosystem was well-built or started to get well-built with Shopify's India entry. Facebook and Instagram themselves have become great mediums for shopping directly without even a shopping cart. You know, and demand generation has evolved many fold on Google and Facebook organically influencers over the last, you know, 10 years. So it seemed like, or seems like, you know, e-commerce is done. You know, you can now generate demand off Amazon. If you're a unique, quirky brand, tell your story, keep your customers. Amazon's one channel, Facebook's another channel. I mean, that's, it's, it's pretty simple. Then what is the need for all of this stuff that we do? The reality is that that's, that would have been great maybe 10 years ago. But now in an environment where Amazon is really pushing the boundary on the distribution experience, right? And the trust between the uh, uh, the seller and the buyer, it's not okay to just have a great looking website and bring consumers to the buy button, but it's, it's extremely important to be able to deliver the post-purchase experience in a meaningful fashion where you begin to trust the experience, right? That's where, you know, CACs can go down, conversion can go up. Uh, and you get a better NPS, loyalty, repeat rates, and so on. So I think we we started with shipping because there was a problem of access. That was our first sort of understanding. And then as we kept scaling and kept going through the motions, started understanding that, look, the problem is not just about shipping. It's a it's a larger, uh, larger problem, which is a intertwined problem between having predictable supply chain, having the right kind of workflow so that data can flow between all the stakeholders in the process, and having intelligence because, you know, if we can't tell uh, Jivraj from Sahil or the system can't tell between two people, it's not going to be able to be intelligent about it and there'll be fraud or losses, right? If we can't tell one carrier lane from the other, then we're not really optimizing anything. So this started to dawn to us. Amazon does this extremely well. They've been doing it for years. And we felt that for direct commerce, you know, we should pick up the 
sort of the flag to say that we should solve this because without this, again, direct commerce merchants don't really have a, a level playing field and they don't have the requisite set of tools. So the first thing we did was actually go into fulfillment, right? So today, you know, we started with one 20,000 square feet fulfillment center in Bangalore. This was during COVID. Uh, today, we are about 50 fulfillment centers strong, nearly a 2 million square feet footprint. Uh, and nearly 20% of our shipments actually happen from there, right? So we are able to do uh, one day, two day deliveries from there. Uh, you know, returns are lower. The customer experience is better because we can tell on the person's checkout is coming tomorrow. So automatically people want to buy. So we're sort of moving closer towards uh, mimicking that experience, you know, that you have on Amazon. And from a tooling perspective, you know, we started building a bunch of software, building slash acquiring, right? So we uh, started building software for helping uh, on-site conversion. We started helping with fraud detection, started helping with post-order communication. How do we use WhatsApp as a great channel, especially for COD orders, right? Because uh, there's a big issue with RTO, which is a return before delivery on COD orders. How do you continue to keep the intent in the mind of the buyer alive? How do you reduce customer service cost for the merchant? How do you power a self-service return center? So again, the trust goes up. So I think it's a mixture of working with fulfillment and shipping partners to make sure that the supply chain and the information highway of supply chain continues to work well. Along with that, utilizing a bunch of technology that can plug into a Shopify or a Facebook to be able to kind of, you know, make that experience more and more easy, intuitive, and what we are used to as consumers. And finally, using the data that we continue to grow and acquire to be able to tie all this up to create that wow experience. Now, as consumers, you guys see nothing, right? You just see that I ordered on such and such website. I got it in three days. When it got late, Shiprocket texted me. Uh, I'm used to reading in Hindi. So Shiprocket wrote to me in Hindi because we, we do all of that stuff with the intelligence that we have, you know, or I got a call because I was not responding on the WhatsApp. So we, we use our intelligence to be able to do that. But as a consumer, you have a good experience because you were kept in the loop. Even if there was a delay, you were proactively told. So you're not wondering what's happening to this. Uh, you know, if you wanted to pay uh, digitally because you were not going to be home uh, for your COD order, we let you do that. And, you know, the merchant uh, for this is obviously slightly more involved. But at the merchant's end as well, a lot of this is put under the hood. You press a button, we tell you various carriers available for various speeds, quality, uh, price. You know, you can pick what you want for your, uh, we'll even tell you this is a repeat customer. So you may want to give a better experience here. So if you can spend 10 rupees extra, but get it there a day faster, do it. Because this guy has ordered from you before. So trying to help the merchant, you know, to kind of be able to navigate some of this and really building it in a very templatized fashion. Because while we do serve enterprises, I think the, the bulk of our focus energy goes towards making the mid market merchant successful or the long tail successful. Cause that's what we learned, you know, and a lot of that comes from not giving a lot of controls, not giving a lot of customization. Cause that's when it starts going into this sort of unscalable uh, territory. Got it. Got it. Again, that's super fascinating, Sahil. I think that clarifies a bunch of things around the process and goes to show that, you know, eventually we'll get to a point where the Amazon-like experience can be replicated by the other merchants as well. I think it's already happening. It's amazing how Shiprockets uh, playing the role of making it happen. Coming out a bit um, is also maybe the state of e-commerce in India, right? I was going through one of your past interviews and you mentioned that, you know, 85 million unique or the touch points with customers uh, that you have already established as a company. And, you know, if one company is already doing that, then we of course have uh, so much more depth that's available, uh, which is not already being represented by numbers. And there are around 
if I'm not wrong, again, 150,000 merchants or more uh, on the platform. If you can maybe talk to us about what you're seeing from an on-ground reality perspective in terms of the e-commerce revolution in the country, I, I think that'll be very, very insightful to hear. Well, happy to hear. This is, you know, it's fascinating how this has evolved in the last Every three, four years, we see like a big change, right? And earlier, e-commerce just meant marketplaces. Like five years ago, you know, when we were talking to the market saying, oh, we're going to power direct commerce businesses. Like, what's that? Like, I've never shopped from a direct commerce merchant. Like, you haven't. But, you know, there's an audience who does it. It was small, but it was happening. Today, I think no one is asking that question. They get it. That, oh, yeah, yeah, I know someone who bought an Instagram. I may not have done it, but I know it's happening. And three or two in five people have done it. You know, where they have they've had the experience of doing it. Uh, either from a website, you know, you see an ad on Facebook, you click it, you like it, you order it and so on. And brands have also gotten very creative because, you know, uh, India also was struggling through a supply problem earlier where all we had was big box brands or a lot of China import. There wasn't a lot of great products that were being built or imported in India. I think that's massively changed and, uh, uh, you know, solved one part of the funnel thanks to the merchant community that that's done that. Um, so I think if you, if you kind of look at all these trends together, you know, there is a, a big penetration of uh, direct commerce as a channel by direct commerce. We mean every offline retailer, big or small that has their.com in addition to, you know, let's say an offline, uh, uh, store footprint as well as selling on Amazon. And I'm, I use Amazon as a placeholder. There is digital first merchants, you know, who we call D2C more, uh, uh colloquially, uh, who are digital first who say, no, no, I'm not offline yet. I'm going to begin with the digital first business um, who can be again, SMBs, they can be large in size and so on. And then you've got this very interesting sort of micro brand uh, concept, which could be resellers, influencers, or they could be uh, the future digital first brands, but they're just super young. Like they're two people companies, right? Uh, who are just selling on Insta for now, scaling to 100, 200, 500 orders a month, and then kind of thinking about the next step. So all of this put together, in my opinion, is already 15 to 20% of India e-commerce. It doesn't show up many times because, uh, especially the unstructured part, because it's just it's hard to report that, right? It's platforms like us uh, who have that visibility, but a lot of other times it's just, it doesn't show up, you know, because like the pay payment gateways won't see it. The carriers may not see it, right? We see it. So we know, in fact, nearly 35% of the volume that gets generated on our platform is unstructured, which means that people are using our mobile app to enter it by hand, which tells us that they're just super small. And that is where the 150, 200,000 merchant that, that, that works on the platform uh, number starts to show up. So there's a very different kind of merchant base, very different kind of volume that's being generated, which is not apparent. And, and that's been growing every year. Direct commerce overall has been growing every year. COVID was a sort of a big uh, kick in the pants for people, you know, who were just saying, oh, it's just a fad or it's just marketing. Uh, but eventually it's all going to be Amazon. I think people realize that, you know, that's, uh, you can't uh, depend on that. And you have to have your channel, you know, it's a, it's a multi-channel uh, strategy and all channels have to, uh, you know, have to, have to sort of work together to make this possible. So um, I think, uh, you know, I think over the years, that's been a big sort of big change in trends uh, where direct commerce continues to grow. Long tail merchants, you know, given that the tools that are available, given, uh, you know, the, the ecosystem around them has developed quite nicely. All of those things have come together, you know, and, and, and is pushing this forward and direct commerce in the US today is, but about 40, 45% of all of e-commerce. So.com there is, is huge. I mean, look at Shopify and 
the Facebook ad ecosystem, all of that stuff together has made for a pretty, pretty impressive growth. Absolutely. I think uh, that's very refreshing to hear and just reinstores belief in the India growth story, especially from a brand perspective. Uh, I know this might be repetitive for you, but I also understand that the tire two, three numbers are also very encouraging uh, as opposed to what we may think from the outside, right? So if I had to ask you maybe very quickly about Bharat Commerce, especially because, you know, from a ground reality, there's just way more happening than we know or understand i think that'll be very helpful before we move on further sahil no absolutely it's very exciting and uh, you know we have seen a great trend in that direction as well when we started ship rocket in 17 18 i think 60 65% of our demand and supply both were tier 1 and the rest was tier 2 3 that trend is completely reversed you know today almost i think almost 70% of the demand is now tier two and beyond. And even the supply side, we are finding, you know, sort of tier two cities uh, where merchants are much more entrepreneurial, uh, closer to supply hubs and so on, who are who are really taking charge. So uh, I would say almost uh, like a half and half split between the supply and then a good 70% of the demand is tier two and beyond. And I think that trend continues to grow, right? That trend continues to grow yeah. in that direction because the next set of users, you know, if there are today, I've heard numbers, I've heard 150 million, 200 million buyers, uh, all kinds of numbers. And sometimes I wonder, you know, that if a if, if a platform like us has been able to touch 80, 90 million buyers, uh, I, I, I don't think there's a possibility of having only 150. Like there's got to be much more. Now they could be low transaction users. They could be WhatsApp first users. They could be vernacular regional users. I don't know. But, it, but they're very much there. You know, if you look at Misho and some of the other platforms that are going after that next 500 million user base, it's, it's not going to look like what it looks like today. It is going to be different. You know, and our, our belief is that, look, no matter what it looks like, eventually people will need to ship and they will need to connect this together. So we want to stay in the enablement space clearly uh, as this, this happens, right? Absolutely. Amazing to hear that again. No, this has been wonderful. Uh, I think as we go ahead, maybe it's interesting to touch upon some other aspects. One of the things that stands out about ShipRocket is, of course, let's say the fundamentals with which it started, right? Uh, and I'm talking about things like profitability, focus on numbers, and it's not been a heavily funded company either, right? I mean, in the last couple of years, yes, there have been a couple of rounds, but uh, traditionally you have this mindset. And whenever uh, in my research, I've heard you all speak also, there's a very strong fundamental focus on business mm -hmm. metrics. Uh, talk to us about what that means as a culture standpoint and how do you instill it as you grow, right? Because now I'm guessing size has considerably gone up. So how do you maintain this level of discipline and where does it flow from? Uh, I'd love to know that. Yeah, I think multiple reasons, you know, and uh, I think first of all, we were, we, we just didn't know how to buy growth. Like it's not in our DNA. We, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. All I'm saying is as founders, that's not how we had envisioned starting the company. When we launched, there was no VC. So we bootstrapped for a long time, you know, got our early angels together, almost made them like working partners with us saying, come and help us, you know? So, so we had never been, we never thought that, you know, you can use capital to grow. Like that was not really a philosophy. So I think that DNA just stayed, you know, over time, even when we did do growth experiments and investments, they were pretty small in nature. I'm talking about the early days. And then by 2019, we had become net profitable. We were generating cash as a company. In fact, the part of the business, which was a pure shipping, you know, vertical that has stayed profitable since then, right? Nothing's happened to it in terms of profitability, but of course we've gotten much more aggressive uh, in terms of building other components and 
using that capital efficiently but i think end of the day we we again fall back on first principle saying okay if i had four places to deploy this capital where is my return on the capital going to be the highest right and whatever project or investment we put it in then we strongly measure that it's not that we are investment averse but eventually it's got to start yielding a return and if it doesn't yield a return then it needs to get shut down right because in, end of the day you know we as founders one sort of came from that background where you know cap access to capital was not easily available in the in the early formative years of our journey and secondly we also want to run this for the next 20 30 years you know we are not in it to kind of like we're not in it to make a quick buck or anything right we 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 like what we do we actually believe in the mission so for us it it'll always fall back on saying well is this a long term initiative and if not then then makes no sense to do it and when you say these input things input variables together automatically it's going to lead to better unit economics automatically it's going to lead to better profitability and uh that's kind of what we've always built around or believed in and it's not like we haven't made mistakes we've made ton of mistakes right uh, uh lots of times i go back and think maybe we should not have done this project or we should not have invested so much money behind xyz but i'm saying as long as we are conscious of that and as long as the team around you understands that uh as long as the company understands that you know it's it's very much a um um uh, value focused company uh, both in terms of preserving as well as creating for every stakeholder including our own shareholders and and us right and our merchants and everyone else so so i think some of that stuff runs pretty pretty early on you know in the dna and and has just stayed to be honest so second nature to us now it's not something we have to really you know it's very i don't know i think yeah it's just there I think that helps having it naturally definitely helps but it's great I mean that there's no right or wrong I'm sure but then this method has always uh, it's worked for you and it's great that it's just continuing well enough and important to reinforce this way as well amongst others right so I think good to hear that um as we proceed the other bit and I don't want to sound stereotypical by understanding more about b2b marketing but traditionally it's been very difficult to let's say establish trust especially from a business to business perspective in India right because we've seen the likes of like an infosys created like globally we've seen the likes of sas uh, you know zoho freshworks do it globally as well and then in consumer in india we've done it well but in b2b creating trust uh, seems like a low hanging fruit which has not been solved for yet uh, considering that of course so much of shiprocket's business model depends upon the merchants and the suppliers has this ever been a problem statement to crack and if yes how do you navigate it what's the internal principle like yeah i think it changed with scale early days it was bang on like you said like you know why should i i'll give an example when we launched the shipping platform we had burnt our hands so many times trying to collect money because the trust is both ways right that that itself was a reason to say look maybe we should not do this business right because we still have to pay our suppliers and like i can't run after people uh, trying to collect 500 rupees it's just not our business so we said we should build a wallet and let people prepay it was not the norm at the time right and we said okay it doesn't matter maybe i'll address only 5% of the market but at least whatever i address i'll be able to put in my bank and and run my business and people were very reluctant saying well, why should i give you my money who are you right what if you run away with my money and i think it it takes time it takes sort of yeah. uh, speaking their language right there are always the early adopters who will be daring enough to evangelize try then they'll tell their friends oh i tried this and i had a good experience so really focusing hard on solving every user's problem as much as you can fairly is very important right that is the fundamental uh, trust building required 
especially when it comes to money cycles you know we uh, work in the cod industry along with working in shipping how do you make sure people get charged fairly how do you make sure your billing systems are great uh, so then that, it takes time for people to kind of uh, uh, you know develop that trust and then over time as there's more and more uh, folks using you there is a bit of that network effect you know where like you start to build that trust and, and there's even more responsibility than than to then to uphold it so I, i don't think there is any shortcut i don't think marketing solves it alone because smbs are very very smart uh, you know businesses they they look at the bottom line they look at the impact uh, they're very sharp in in their in their business and their overall working so uh, i think it's just it's just patience and kind of staying staying the course uh, and eventually it, it does happen i i don't know if there is a Uh, another analogy for a shortcut i was trying to think but but i haven't been able to uh, find one yet you know if you look at any uh, successful india focused b2b company whether it's india mart uh, uh, or even 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 platforms like nokri right they they've had to do the grunt you know over a over over a longish period of time and it's just there's no like there's no quick win unlike consumer consumer does have that virality aspect and all that like you mentioned but it, it's it's with b2b it's, i i don't know if there is anything like that got it got it patience as the cornerstone of making it happen uh, but this is this is fascinating i think the other aspect of uh, what's very you know in my head as i was you know researching i realized that there's a lot of focus that's been elaborated through the journey but at the same time there's also been a lot of experimentation and one such thing that i feel super excited about is ship rocket x right with this going a uh, global there's this entire belief of building consumer brands from india for the world which is another very interesting theme coming up in the country and we of course need a champions like ship rocket to make it happen because it's not going to be a one ecosystem and not one player ecosystem anyway talk to us about where that thought comes from and i'm sure you've probably answered this multiple times but in terms of depth versus breadth right uh, is there more depth to go to in india and would that have made more logical sense as a company to focus on or when you decide to do such an experiment or such an expansion rather uh, what is the internal compass of the company like how do you tactically make it happen see i think uh, i'll tell you what's what's constant and what's variable right what's constant is the merchant the category and the type of merchant we work with that's constant in our entire business right so if we work with a direct commerce merchant that's it like we don't work with anyone else right they could be of any size and then of course we'll continue to kind of expand in that fashion but it's the same problem the same use case number one number two um, what's also constant is the mission right what are we doing and why are we valuable and why are we important to the ecosystem at large and that continues to be to help the merchant succeed it's very simple how do we help our users succeed more than just helping them you know ship better fulfill better save money uh, get more buyers right what what else can we do for them and for us a lot of the roadmap is honestly governed by the merchants themselves you know we do very active serving very active meetings you know uh, uh, and honestly you know pelt out the strategy from there to be to be very honest so so i, I so i think uh the whole going global piece is not new to be honest we launched it 4 years ago as well and and failed because uh because of focus because we just couldn't do it at that time it we realized that it's not just uh putting a couple of carriers it's not that you have to really go deep um and as we started kind of uh getting more requests from merchants the supply started becoming more and more available right where now there are you know we work with over 20 20 30000 connected websites who have beautiful products that have you know that are doing so well in india 
and one of the things that merchants can really avail of is a is a like a 4x 3x bump in aov because something that retails for a thousand bucks in india can very easily sell in the us for four five thousand bucks right so it's a huge margin boost for the merchants they they are anyway manufacturing they are anyway storing uh so why not why not give them access to global borders a uh, lot of it came from the merchants you know some of our merchants had figured it out but it was very very cumbersome you know uh, the larger ones would go and take a warehouse space there find an importer on record take the goods there then find a selling channel it's very tough right for uh, the big ones could still do it but somebody who's doing only a thousand transactions per month they will never be able to do it right so the same logic holds you know why can't indian products show up on global shelves and uh, why can't we 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 do that for them and one of the key things that came back was well we can still figure out how to list on amazon or lazada or whatever but how do we get it there like we don't have a way to ship item by item in a cheap fashion traceable fashion uh, and if we do if something goes wrong who do we call right how are we going to manage this or if we if we get scale then how do we store the inventory in a foreign country what are the customs requirements you know and so on so i think there was enough complexity and enough uh, uh, resemblance to the kinds of problems we like to solve where we we picked it up again and we said okay we we need to solve this um and it's it's still the indian merchant right we're simply telling them that look we'll help you ship within you know your city within india and and, and within the world uh, as well but it's the same set of merchants who you know we are providing multiple uh, products to so think of it this way so it's it's not so much a focus in direction as much as a focus in maybe prioritization of product and so on which is i think one thing that sort of you know growth solves you know because if you have multiple teams multiple leaders uh, uh you are able to do it as long as you just don't bite off uh, much more than you can chew absolutely i think that makes complete sense uh, if you look at it as a natural extension as opposed to like a divergence i think that can just put things into perspective uh, but the other aspect of growth which we prokets also you know uh, shown is inorganic growth by virtue of uh, mnas right and traditionally india has not been a very strong mna ecosystem and hopefully that's only going to get strengthened further uh, i've also had the pleasure of hosting gorov of picker on the show where he actually mentioned a bit about the acquisition and how values really seem to align what i'd love to understand is from a culture standpoint from a you know inorganic growth standpoint in terms of team and just like human capital how do you end up managing that when you're taking a decision such as this uh, what does that really mean for the company how do you navigate it i would love to know any nuances on that aspect yeah look i think it's uh, you're absolutely right you know mna is um, is exciting and and hard at the same time um because of everything that can go wrong to be honest and because of everything that can go right and when we when we sort of uh, you know when we raised our last round of capital i think one of the clear uh, roadmaps for us was to try and accelerate you know our uh, vision and execution on the vision rather and we we love building as a company so it's not like you know we're builders by by design so we love that but if we can do it you know in in 1/4 the time for certain components and why not so that kind of thought process came into our heads um and then we you know uh, we did not do a very big net we had very specific uh components that we wanted to buy and and join back into the stack right uh and it was a very active role that uh, the leaders in our company had to play i had to and still dedicate a bunch of time towards making sure that things integrate and it, it works like a machine otherwise it's it's just it's a sham right and um i think uh, culture was the is the first filter like if you have three identified 
potential strategic partners and and you don't align on the value system that's it no matter how good the business is uh if the value system is not intact or uh how we think about value creation or the sort of belief of the long term etc if we find that there isn't a, a meaningful uh a match there we 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 would not proceed like it's just uh, uh very 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 intuitive to us you know to to not be able to do it because you know like some, someone asked me how do you price the value how do you price assets when you buy them and uh and my view was that there is no price like because you know it, you can't over or underpay for any any of this because once once it happens what value it's going to create here that's where it, it really matters so you know i'm not sure like going in what you paid for it's like vcs right when vcs pay for an asset like it's for a forward looking uh, uh outcome right it's not for what, what's happening today and i think it's the same way like when you when you decide to join hands or join forces uh for us it's been the same way and you know i'm very very happy uh with the journey we we've, we've acquired now five companies and it's it's just been amazing like it's everything has grown by the way everything has grown in the last one year um you know we we work like one team and of course some things are not fully integrated because they're not meant to be uh but still the, it's like one expanded team where you know we've been able to get all of these other sort of leaders from the ecosystem who are now helping us build this even faster so that's that's been that's been the overall thinking and and like i said very excited about you know how it can really accelerate and put fuel into into a uh, into a company got it super this sounds very exciting and i can only imagine what the inner challenges look like but great to see the outcomes really align this this also begs the question right sahil i mean i'm guessing with five you know new acquisitions and uh, through the journey with four co-founders i'm guessing your role as a ceo really uh, would be really differentiated and i'd love to know what that is considering that there is so much happening at any given point in time uh, which is to say that at least again from the outside uh, you look at ship rocket you think there are you know acquisitions happening this day to day happening forward looking project expansion to the us what not right this can seem like a, a wide array of things that need to be managed well what do you have to do right to ensure this engine is running well enough and where do you spend most of your time yeah i think it's it's been a very uh, uphill journey for me as well to be very honest because it's like a pivot in my thinking and 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 execution every 6 months you know i have to kind of try and rehire myself for this role uh and i try to be very objective you know uh, about all the areas where i struggle or i i operate let's say uh, under efficiently and so on and uh i think it's all about the team to be very honest with you you know my growth as a leader has only been possible because of the folks around me like you know every senior leader i've hired in the last 5 years has made me a better better person you know they bring their knowledge with them like they tell us how it's done in x company y company i may not adopt everything but it's always great to know that okay i'm struggling with you know let's say prioritization of time where do i put my time and the better the people were the better i became you know to be honest with you because your team gives you leverage without the team there is no ceo is meaningless right so i think i think honestly that's it like the team has been essential in in allowing me to one be be able to delegate be able to step up and two even like how i should run my day or where can i add the most leverage because i try to do this sort of uh, you know can i affect it and does it matter right enough like is it important enough and can i affect it personally if i if answer to any of those is no i generally try and not focus on it if i realize that you know setting the vision for the next 5 years and setting goals or okrs let's say for this quarter or this year 
that is the most important thing because it will bring people on the same page people will start working well with each other it will remove confusion remove sort of like why are we doing this and stuff like that so i realized over time that i had to be a much better communicator you know because if i am not communicating articulating enough then that's you know it's not about doing as much as sort of being able to get people aligned on the same same common objective you know so so i'll try and put a lot of my time on that of course we have a pretty large uh, a cap table now so there's a bunch of uh, you know alignment and sort of feedbacks with investors that that has to be managed i i try and get involved in a bunch of the zero to one projects cuz i still love them you know so i'll i'll try and put some of my execution time there uh, to help drive some of that ideate with some of those things and that's it the rest to be very honest with you is is largely having a great team you know who's aligned with you uh, i don't think it's not possible for somebody to drive another person is my fundamental belief i think you can align someone on a a, a common vision right you can give very objective feedback to make somebody better mentor somebody but that's it like beyond that it's it's really their calling and their their push super no i love that i think especially that framework uh, can i affect it and does it really help does it make it better so i think that is super tactical and overall also lovely to hear that you know a newer set of challenges of course brings in an interesting uh, learning curve for you as well and just gives us a more interesting vantage point to maybe observe and learn from um since you mentioned team a bunch of times and we've not had the chance to maybe focus on that particularly again i am trying to not be generic here but considering that this has been you know a decade plus journey now and it's going to be a longer if i'm not wrong there are cumulatively 1500 and more people in the organization now um so uh, how do you at this point you know ensure that in terms of leadership alignment or just like hiring the best people what is the go to strategy like what do you look for things on a tactical level in terms of just having spent time maybe how do you solve for attrition in the company how do you solve for inner leadership stuff like that i'll keep this broad ended but if you can give your cues to how to you know build the best possible team and what you do at ship rocket i think that'll be super helpful sahil similar to mna i think value alignment is is key you know because uh, a company's soul is the value system you know and you can call it culture you can call it values whatever i think that there the filter is extremely high right both at the time of getting people in as well as at the time of you know performance uh, appraisals and so on i always say this you know will is much bigger than skill because you know that was my experience too i did, knew nothing about this industry but given that we were uh, uh, so hungry to to make it happen you know we learned whatever there was to learn uh and continue to do so every day so i think we look for sort of folks like that but at the same time uh like couple of years ago we made sure that we are not just hiring in only our own image you know because that too is bad for the company because then there's less diversity so it, it's not okay to just because then we'll be very homogeneous and very like mono as as a company so i think we we did like a a, a values exercise a couple of years ago got in our top 20 30 leaders and really try to kind of spell out you know what are our values you know and i it was pretty refreshing because while i thought i had i should have had it 100% i only had 60 70% because there was a certain set of you know uh, uh, expectations or values that came from the team and that was great you know i was like i, I agreed with them 100% uh, but i'm saying it was not apparent or clear to me so i think getting people to really strongly align on the values walking the talk not just something that stuck on the walls you know it's it has to be part of your everyday being and your everyday behavior that tells the team that look this is how it's done i think that's a glue that really keeps everyone together and then spelling out we adopted an okr system 3 years ago 
because i started to find it very hard to be able to make sure that every person in the org had the right message you know and then i would hear offhand questions or saying why are we doing this and i i can answer it but it's not scalable to answer it one of right one by one but the cascading system of the okr is not only good for the team it's also good for me right because it keeps me also disciplined saying okay in this quarter if we need to do these five things let's only do initiatives that help us get to those five things right and that brought in great discipline great prioritization it took away some of that but you know the fomo of saying par ye bhi karna hai when will we do this and we like, okay but we'll do it next quarter we we agreed right and i think that was a great to be very honest it was a great tool uh, to kind of get the actual productivity and actual alignment on the actual tasks going and other than that having sort of leadership development you know uh, our our hr head joined about a year ago and she's really come and uh, taken to the next level just in terms of uh, growth paths or just in terms of career ladder a uh, bunch of training you know bunch of sort of even even psychological assessments like hogan to say okay well you know who's a risk taker who's not and that perspective between the team uh, can be immensely useful you know otherwise you may kind of you may agree or disagree and commit but you may not know why so having that perspective has has also been very useful you know for our team awesome awesome no i love that i think a lot of crucial pointers there and a lot of great learnings thanks for sharing that sahil i think goes back to a lot of food for thought for folks listening uh, this means super interesting and as we close it down i have like a set of last two questions which i usually ask most founders on the show and close one of them is i mean i i continue saying that the purpose of the podcast is not to make uh let's say company building sound fancy or not to make the founder journey uh fancy but it's to you know humanize it so maybe uh, since we've spoken about a bunch of you know theoretical strategic tactical aspects uh maybe if you can talk about uh, not in the traditional sense of challenges but things that you know don't get spoken of enough maybe you speak to with a close mentor or are you know part of water cooler conversations what about the founder journey has been challenging for you simply stated uh, would love to know that sahil i think uh, you know i think self belief is a uh, is not what it seems like because founders at least early days and even now sometimes you'll often doubt yourself am i doing the right thing and there are going to be so many opinions and so much free advice that it, always right so i think it's like i said it's important to compartmentalize it it's also see i'm also not saying don't do it like just blindly because then you'll make a mistake uh, so having the right set of people around you i learned i know i mentioned that you have to make your own mistakes but i kind i think i'm 20% uh, there where i'm trying to learn from other people's mistakes and kind of you know that takes a bit of an open heart to say you know what don't have to uh, do everything yourself and, and and fail at everything let's just go with it it's okay right and that has been useful it's helped me save time you know because i'm like okay well you know i trust uh, person a and person a uh, has they've had this experience how can i learn from them you know and i think that i mean as 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 silly and trivial as it sounds it's not easy to implement because founders fundamentally are over optimists right and that's their problem and, and and that's that's why they they end up doing some things differently so i think i think sort of um, having enough self doubt but not over over self doubting yourself is important as long as you have a right set of people a co-founder or a set of people who can critique it come to an answer uh, and be objective about what you're doing and uh, the second thing is also be you know try and outsource your learning uh, if you can with folks who who personally have had their experiences and how can you leverage that those were two sort of sort of tactical things that that come to mind you know as, as i think about what your your question 
got it so the optimal amount of self doubt or self belief that's an interesting one i love how you've articulated that uh, but this has been great i have honestly like enjoyed so many aspects of this conversation as we close uh, this is uh, something that i again ask most founders on this show uh, when we go back to you know the original motivation and considering the size i'm sure now there's a lot to lose right and i'm sure the visions also consequential now where you're almost on the verge of making it happen it starts off with an idea a belief now it's almost like this proof that it's happening now you just have to cross the like i don't know the race right and you have to complete it uh, what still gets you out of bed right like keeping all of these things in context i'm sure like all of these things are a driving force but how do you continue staying motivated about that mission about building ship rocket every day if you can maybe crystallize that thought for us as we conclude i think that'll be phenomenal I think it's very important to expand and zoom out the vision every year or every two years. Um, you know, you should pat yourself on the back for what you've done, but don't stay there too long, right? Because uh, uh, being balanced about what you've been able to do is is important. And because we continue pushing the envelope and saying, okay, well, you know, till three years ago, had we imagined we'll get here? No. right but now we're saying okay let's be even more audacious you know can we uh, so i think that is where you keep pushing yourself number one and uh, number two is progress you know you it could be mini micro progress in one part of the business it could be one new feature whatever it is it's extremely important to continue making progress towards that vision otherwise it starts getting like you know because uh, there are quarters when it's like everything is just maintenance you know and uh, it can get hard because you know you you may not uh, you may not enjoy it as much so i think that for me and i know for a lot of our team is essentially just that just saying okay well you know we expanded the vision this year we are now going to do these two new things what's happening right uh, and you may not spend like a lot of time on it as a founder but knowing that it's happening is exciting you know and then uh, even if you build and fail it's okay it's part of the journey got it got it that i think perfectly summarizes it thank you so much sahil for being your candid self and for being on the show i think this has been super productive helpful and valuable i'm sure i have learned a ton and i hope everybody listening does as well hope you enjoyed it thank you jibraj thank you for having me great seeing you awesome with that we come to the end of this conversation thank you so much for tuning in to the episode I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're finding value with the podcast, do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice, drop in a review and subscribe to our WhatsApp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox. Thanks again. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you record. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building